uh, from Matthew 5, 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Quinn Church. You may be seated. And if you haven't already, please uh, open your Bibles, or you can see there in your songbook, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 48 will be our primary text. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. It's good to open up the Word with you. Good to continue to navigate this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus teaches between Matthew 5, 6, uh, and 7. And thus far, uh, I hope it's been clear that Jesus' disciples have this particular charter or calling, um, and it is neither to uh, sort of sit above society as these holy judges critiquing it, but neither are we to sit simply amongst society or prevailing culture, and to live without distinction. I I think there's this tension constantly in Jesus' words that His kingdom, is what He calls it, is coming in subtlety, but it's surety. It's coming slowly, but but it's coming to those, He says, who are blessed, who are salt and light, who are learning to live um, not according to simply the letter of the law, but the heart of it, the heart of what and the purpose behind what Jesus is teaching. This is what we're simply calling the nature of kingdom being, of what it means to be kingdom people, brothers and sisters in this. Um, and one of the things that we're continuing, one of the things we're continuing to, I think, unlearn and even heal from is this idea that the Sermon on the Mount is not about doing, which I know can be pro- problematic to many of us in the way that we think, because we'd like to know, how am I doing today? I'm going to compare what the sermon is talking about and to see if I'm doing it and sort of gauge myself and others accordingly. But kingdom being is not about doing. First and foremost, it's about being and it's about healing. It's about becoming something through the power of the gospel that, that we couldn't be on our own. And so last week we looked um, and considered just how Jesus is healing us, how he's making us whole, how he's bringing back together things that have been fractured. Our, our anger and our love had been fractured apart and Jesus brings them back together. Our bodies and souls had been fractured, had been fractured. Um, and he's bringing us back together, God and our lives. We find ways to separate God from certain aspects of our life, and he brings us back together. And through Jesus, then, what we see is that whatever has been fractured, he is making whole. He is making whole right now, and one day fully, completely, we will be whole and well. That We'll experience what uh, the Hebrew people simply called shalom, perfection, wholeness, uh, flourishing. And that took us all the way to verse 37. And so now in this final two pericopes or two sections that Jesus talks about in this list of six, he focuses on resisting retaliation or loving uh, our enemies. And so what we will consider today, I, I hope that will be helpful, is what does it look like to love difficult people? 
I wonder if any of you may have met a difficult person before. Um, and, you know, the adage is that if you haven't met one, they're likely you are one. Um, but uh, that you see in the process of being made whole, I think what Jesus is saying is you and I are being made whole. You and I are going to interact with a lot of people who are not whole yet, who are not complete yet. And if you're anything like me, I believe that I should be afforded a certain kind of luxury and space to keep developing and growing and learning, but not other people. They need to be completely ready and whole already and treat me perfectly, right? And so Jesus begins to work through that a little bit with us because in this life, you and I, sooner or later, or perhaps every single day, are going to interact with people who are difficult, who are difficult to love. Namely, then, what we have to learn to do is live with what we'll simply call difficult people who, like us, are not whole yet, who are not complete yet, and maybe in different ways than you. It's inevitable. In your family, in your work, in your community, in this church, the person perhaps you are sitting next to right now, right? They may drain your energy. They may hurt you. They may even oppose God to your face or around the Thanksgiving table, or perhaps this is why you don't go on vacation with them, because you know you will never rest around this person, right? This is why the old comedian used to say, there's a lot of people I love that I do not like, right? We know the difference. Some people are just difficult to love. And so that's what I'd like to talk about today. I'd like to talk about through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, how to love difficult people. Here's how we'll organize our time. We'll look at the nature of difficult people that Jesus describes. We'll look at the response that we ought to have toward difficult people. And then we'll look at the hope that we have um, within this conversation of difficult people. And so it's to that end I hope to be available to God's Spirit. Let's pray. Father, uh, left to ourselves, we will certainly make a mess of this, and we have, and we likely are in ways that we, we aren't even aware of. And so we're coming to you uh, for help because you're our Father who knows us intimately, and yet, as we'll learn in a couple of weeks, you are our Father who is in heaven. And so you're over all of this. You're in control of all of this. And so we're coming to you because you love us. We're coming to you because you control all things. And there's no one else like that who is all-loving and all-powerful. And so we submit ourselves to you and ask that you would direct and guide us today. Um, would you remind us of truth? Would you uh, help us to know how to live and love differently? But also, would you transform us on the spot? Because any plan we ought to make or might make for tomorrow is doomed to failure unless there is true spiritual transformation in our hearts and minds. And so we're grateful that you can do that work. So would you do it for your glory? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to bounce around a little bit between these two final portions of Scripture or sections because I think Jesus is essentially getting at the same big idea in both of these sections, both of these pericopes or these two passages. See, as in the previous four instances, Jesus compares what has been taught in the past with what he is teaching. He's trying to help his disciples understand what it is that they may have learned or what they may currently be hearing from other religious teachers, and he wants to help them understand the difference. He is saying specifically in a passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago that he has not come to abolish the law, to get rid of the law. He's come to fulfill it, to bring it to its completion or its wholeness or to reveal the heart of it. He's reframing righteousness, as we've been saying, around the heart which I think what we've been learning is it makes following um, all the more challenging that my heart shouldn't bear hatred, for instance, not just not kill somebody. It may be easy for you to not kill somebody, but it's really hard for most of us to not hate or be angry or to harbor bitterness. And so in some respects, by reframing around the heart, he's making it harder to follow 
um, him, and yet at the same time, because he is demonstrating this, he's incarnating this, and by his spirit gives us power, he's actually making it possible. So that sort of paradoxical approach is really quite amazing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's making it impossible to follow on your own, but actually accessible through his spirit and through his incarnation and his forthcoming death and resurrection. And so notice um, here now as Jesus transitions in verse 38 and 39 into what we'll simply call difficult people. Look at verse 39. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So amidst Jesus' instructions, I think we get this sense of the nature of the opposition likely that his disciples are facing. What I love about Jesus is he's not giving them a hypothetical lesson. He's trying to draw attention to what they have experienced, what they are experiencing, and likely what they are going to experience. See, religion is not just this sort of theoretical ideas to get sort of your ducks in a row theologically or cognitively or intellectually. It's actually a, through Jesus, uh, the spirituality that he is offering through the gospel is a way of being and becoming and facing the world in real space in real time. See, in other words, I think Jesus gives us a good sense of the nature of the difficult people that they're going to face, and I think we have a lot in common uh, with them. Specifically, I think he addresses four different types or aspects of difficult people in personal relationships. The first, if you notice there in the first couple of verses we just read, uh, difficult people harm us socially. See, Jesus says someone may slap you in the face. Now, I want to be really careful. Jesus likely is not describing what you and I may have language for a physical or verbal abuser. Obviously, to call an abuser just a difficult person is a grave misunderstatement. This, we may prefer Jesus' language of the evil person or the one who does evil. So whether we're talking about intimate partner violence, sexual assault, gun violence, or physical harm, particularly to children, we're talking about some of the most damaging and demeaning actions another human being could inflict upon another. And so we should be very careful to cite this verse as a reason for the abuser to just continue to allow the abuse to exist. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Those are egregious expressions against the image of God, and biblically, there are great places to go to understand how we ought to approach such situations, like Deuteronomy 22 and John chapter 8, when Jesus protects the woman caught in adultery. But I don't think this is one of them. I think Jesus is talking about something else. I think what he is talking about, what he has in mind, is an extreme act of cultural disrespect an extreme act of cultural disrespect, which culturally would have warranted retaliation. In other words, if someone slapped this person on the face and they responded or reacted with slapping on the face, everybody like, that's cool, that makes sense, I get that, I would have done the same thing, you can wash your hands, you're not guilty. But Jesus points us in a different direction. He points us to something else. See, for us, we may not be slapped in the face, but somebody may say something about us or to us online, and therefore we believe that we are justified in our retaliation or our response. Or perhaps somebody in the same circle of friends is saying something about you that is untrue, but they're saying it in such a way where you actually need to speak up and defend yourself and, and speak to it. So you want to retaliate, and you want to say, it's actually not my problem, it's their problem. Let me give you 16 reasons all footnoted why it's their issue and not mine. Or maybe just somebody is just mean-spirited. They're just mean, right? I think Taylor Swift probably has a song about this. Why do you have to be so mean, right? 
It may, it may simply be that there is a person who just constantly seems like they are against you, and so your knee-jerk reaction would be what? Be against them. That's a difficult person. This is what Jesus is describing, someone who is socially difficult. Secondly, he talks about people who may oppress us, difficult people, legally. Jesus says someone may sue you unjustly. You see, few of Jesus' followers would have had much money or many possessions, and so likely they had a loincloth, they had one tunic, one cloak, one head covering, and one pair of sandals. That was it. And so if they were being sued for their tunic, which was like a large shirt that probably got somewhere close to their knees, if they were sued for that, that would be the only one that they have. So it's not just someone taking something that is extra, but something to which that they are dependent upon. This is not a fair proceeding. This is an oppressive legal action being taken against a friend. Perhaps you've had a friend have taken you to court or forced a kind of accountability that was way out of step with a personal minor offense. Perhaps you have experienced this in divorce litigation where someone who you previously could not have been more intimate or close with all of a sudden is your legal adversary that is trying to stick it to you and take everything that you have. Jesus is saying that's another difficult person, not only socially but also legally. Thirdly, he says, that difficult people take advantage of us vocationally. Jesus says someone may force you to work and not get paid. He he does it by communicating this particular cultural um, situation, who is among us has not had a boss that has asked you to do something when you knew you weren't actually going to be fairly compensated for it. They were going to ask you to go above and beyond, right? They use this sort of like community language, like are you a team company player We're going to ask you to do something really not part of your job description, and then we're caught in this space. Do I potentially not get a good job review? Do I potentially have to get a new job? We're put in this particular predicament. See, Jesus describes a third scenario in which someone is forced to walk a mile, and that word forced is particular. It it conjured up this image for Jesus' first readers or listeners of when civilians were forced to carry military baggage not as volunteers, not as hired workers, but those who were forced to do something against their will. They were forced to work against not even just their will, but even they didn't have a contract. That's a difficult person that would take advantage vocationally. Fourthly, Jesus describes difficult people who use us financially. Jesus says, someone may beg money from you or ask you for money. Some difficult people constantly need money. They constantly, that literally is the nature of your relationship with them. It's, hey, how's it going? I have a question. I have a request. I have something I need. And you're like, that train's never late. This person is constantly, maybe not every single month, perhaps not every uh, month in the same kind of way, but one way or another, perhaps even through manipulation or constantly playing the victim, and they're always in a state of emergency or constantly asking for you to give them money. And Jesus is like, I see you. I understand that you can be in that situation, in that predicament. Someone who constantly needs money. They don't want relationship or friendship. Perhaps it's a family member, right? And instead of being a mutually serving family member, they treat you like an ATM. They even see the wealthy or those at least who are better off than them, not simply as able to help them, but obligated to help them. So there can even be spiritual manipulation, like God put you in a position so that you could help me. Jesus is saying that's another difficult person. It's a difficult person to navigate. And he adds a fifth aspect or or kind of person in the next passage. Look at verse 44. Matthew 5, verse 44, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
See, on top of all of these difficulties we could face in personal relationships, Jesus explains that some people are a challenge to your spirit, to your soul. So fifth, difficult people attack us spiritually. Jesus says someone may persecute you, and we need to be so careful with this word because any opposition we face as Christians is not persecution. The word actually means to pursue or hunt. Someone is after you. They are incessantly pursuing you, maybe within your family, your circle of influence, someone who doesn't just disagree or see the world differently than you do, but someone who is openly hostile, dismissive, even belittling of God or the gospel or his word or even of you personally as a follower of Jesus. They aren't curious seekers. They're critics who are your opponents. And Jesus' first followers would come to know this kind of difficulty all too well. Many of them would become part of the first martyrs or first to lose their lives because of their faith. That, to be sure, is a difficult person. So Jesus describes within these uh, two passages five different types of difficult people, difficult people that we may face. Now, I was tempted to make the list even longer (laughs) because there are certainly other ways that people are difficult, but Jesus has seen fit to focus on these five in this particular portion of his teaching. And, and yet, I think it is uh, important to acknowledge and dignify. You may have a difficult person in your life that doesn't fit nicely in those. I still think Jesus has hope to communicate to you. Psychologist Dan uh, Allender explains, I think specifically, how difficult people have an effect on us. And my wife introduced me to Dr. Allender's work um, a while back, and it's been really helpful, especially has this three-part series about how to um, deal with or love difficult people, which I implore to you. Reflecting on the Proverbs, he walks through three particular effects it has on us. That He observes that difficult people drain us, leading us to exhaustion. They just steal our energy. Some people, some psychologists have called these energy vampires, that no matter what they say, you walk away and you're like, I need a nap. I I don't know what it was, it's just a difficult person, right? And often difficult people don't listen, which leads you to contempt, which leads us to have this angst like, you don't even care what I think, you just talk, you never asked me a question. That one gets me right there. This is preaching to the choir right here. And they envy us, thirdly. Often difficult people envy us, which leads to this kind of confusion in our relationship. Wait, do you think I'm good and you like my life, or do you hate my guts and are out to tear me down? There's this kind of emotional gaslighting where you're not even sure what reality is anymore. This has a deeply, deeply severe effect on us. Difficult people then make us tired, they make us angry, and they are confusing. And in the middle of that, the Christian is meant to be so careful to be thoughtful in the way that we respond not react, but respond to the difficult person because we got a lot of emotions. We got a lot of feelings. We may even have a verse that would justify our response to a difficult person. But Jesus gives us two ways, I think, first. Before he explains how we ought to respond, he gives us two ways not to respond, which I think is really helpful. Look at verse 38. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. So Jesus, once again, is quoting Scripture. He's looking back at Exodus chapter 21. He's saying, here's what you've been taught, or here's what they are teaching you right now. And then he says what? But I say to you. 
It's, it's back in that construct. And in this case, Jesus highlights this law recorded in Exodus chapter 21, verses 23 through 25, which Moses records, says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Perhaps you've even heard a quote, which is accredited to Gandhi, which I did a deep dive. I cannot find who originally said it, but often accredited to Gandhi is that an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, right? This idea of um, retributive kind of justice that would be just simply responding to someone in the way that you have been hurt by hurting them in the same way. But what Moses is actually talking about in this case is legal proceedings. He's trying to give uh, Israel a grip, not in personal relationships, but in legal proceedings how to perform. And as before in his sermon, Jesus is doing the opposite. He's talking about personal relationships. He's critiquing them this common habit of the religious teachers to take something meant for the courtroom and enforcing it on their personal relationships. So the religious leaders were teaching people that retaliation was permissible and right and good, not simply in the court, but with one another. If someone harms you, you are justified to harm them in kind. And again, they even had a verse. They may have even quoted Exodus chapter 21. Now, what's this law actually mean? What's Jesus getting at? Well, in the original law, it was meant to curb evil and the effects of evil. Pastor John Stott writes in his commentary on this particular passage, it had this double effect of defining justice and restraining revenge. It was bringing clarity about what justice looked like, and it was withholding that angst in us or that feeling in us and in our spiritual uh, ancestors to simply retaliate. See, God wanted His people to know that there should be consequence and there should be compensation for sin, but that those implications should be measured and they should equal the offense. Meaning that if someone hurts you, their consequence should not be too light or too severe. As the adage goes, like the punishment should what? Fit the crime. Its, po- its proper name is retributive justice. However, Jesus isn't talking about civil law in his, in his sermon. He's talking about personal relationships. He's talking about how to live and love difficult people. And so the first way that church, we have to be very careful not to respond is by just seeking our pound of flesh which is easier said than done. We should not seek revenge. Secondly, Jesus says, we shouldn't hate our enemies. Look at verse 43. And you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, unlike Jesus' previous you've heard it said portions, this instruction about hating your enemies is found nowhere in the Scriptures. So what Jesus is doing here, as before, is he's saying this is what you've been taught, not what God has said. This is what you've been taught. It was a manipulation of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which speaks to the prevailing principle to love your neighbor. So that's why Jesus immediately corrects this thinking as directly as he can. He says, you should not hate. I'm never going to be down with that. God is never down with that. So what Jesus is saying, two things. We should not seek revenge against difficult people, and we should not hate difficult people. So what should we do? How then do we respond to difficult people? Jesus says, don't resist the one who is evil. And in verse uh, 44, he says, love your enemies. That's a good place to begin. We should not resist them. We should love them. Now, this idea of resistance is really nuanced because you see throughout the rest of the scriptures, it's really clear we're supposed to resist evil. We're even supposed to resist the evil one. Paul writes in, uh, to the Ephesian church about putting on the full armor of God, and he says that you may be able to withstand what? 
evil, the day of evil. And James encourages his readers, submit yourself for yourselves therefore to God. Why? So you can resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus could not possibly be saying, let's let evil go unchecked, uncorrected, and unquestioned. He wants us to resist evil systematically and personally. He commands us to resist the evil one, Satan, by surrendering ourselves to the worship and the care of our Lord rather than Jesus is commanding his, his disciples to not resist or retaliate against the difficult person. And you might say, what is the difference? Could there possibly be a difference between resisting evil and resisting an evil person or what is broken and a broken person? Well, in his memoir about the Montgomery bus Boy Scout, Boy, Boy Scout, Boycott, um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. perfectly articulates, I think, this nuanced resistance of what it means to resist evil but not the evil person. See, he understood that there was a fundamental difference, and he explained that nonviolent resistance avoids not only, he says, external physical violence but also internal violence in spirit. The nonviolent resistor not only refuses to shoot his opponent but he also refuses to hate him. King concludes, he says, at the center of nonviolence stands the principle to love. See, like Jesus says, it's not enough to not physically harm someone and to harbor bitterness in your heart. We have to deal with that. We have to deal with that hatred, that lack of love. See, this is what Jesus is getting at. Instead of seeking revenge and hating difficult people, we're called to love them. But of course, I think it's really important to ask, what in the world does that look like? Dr. King said it, Jesus said it, that seems like good company to keep, but how in the world does this flesh and body and spirit actually walk through this? What's that look like? Well, let's walk back quickly through these five things and see if we can't apply love to each scenario, as Jesus, I think, does here. First, we'll start with that social difficulty, that difficult person who harms us socially. What does Jesus say? Turn to him your other cheek also. It's verse 39. Remember, this isn't a a command to allow physical abuse to persist. Rather, we should allow a a difficult person to appear socially strong if that's what they desire, even if it means that you and I appear socially weak. This is so difficult because don't clap backs, just come right when you have an opportunity to either call them back or to tweet it whatever or to tell your friend like i got a thing that would get them that's what you're supposed to resist that's what i'm supposed to resist why because our reputation is not our god so i can let it die that is what's challenging for us is to believe that our reputation is not more important than demonstrating love for a a neighbor even a difficult person. Not only so, but our aim is not to be great in society. Jesus is saying it's to be great in the kingdom. We love them, therefore, by not only not retaliating, but incarnating the gospel to them, sometimes by not saying anything at all. When someone is legally difficult, what does Jesus say? Look at verse 40. Give them your cloak also. In other words, we should let them win. Let them win. Let them win. Why? Because your possessions are not your God. The things you own should not own you. You want my shirt? You need my shirt? Here's my coat too. 
Instead of just saying, oh, you know what, that's not right, that's not okay, and having that kind of raise up in you to seek revenge or a rebuttal or to get even, we go, I don't need a shirt. I don't need a jacket. I'm good. Why? How could we possibly say that? We release what we own, even our most basic possessions, in order to demonstrate love towards a difficult person. See, in Jesus' example, he's even talked talking about an extremely poor person being taken to court and literally the shirt off their back is being taken from them. And he says, throw in your coat as well. Thirdly, in verse 41, when someone is being vocationally difficult, Jesus says we should go with him two miles. Double the unfair request. We should go the extra mile. Why? Because work is not our God. Work is not our God. Being generous to our boss, our supervisor, or some other authority is more important than not having to do more than we ought to do. Fourth, verse 42, when someone is being financially difficult, what does Jesus say? Give to the one who begs. Shouldn't size them up and critique what you asked me last week. This is what you always need. Do you know you're always the burden? Do you know, I'm, I'm, I work hard for my, like, this, this, there's the revenge, there's the retaliation, there's wanting to stick, why you don't have to do it? Lord, I know this is persistent in me, just this week. So when someone has a need or a request, what should we do? Give them what they need. Why? Because money is not your God. Therefore, our impulse when someone has a need should be to help them, to give freely. Lastly, when someone is spiritually difficult, what does Jesus say? Pray for those who persecute you. When someone mistreats you because of your faith, you should demonstrate the power of your faith and the beauty of your faith through prayer. When someone says your faith matters for nothing, you go, I'll pray for you. <laughs> I'll pray for you. I'll pray for that. I'll pray for that. Now, if you can't say that without being a punk and that becoming like a dagger, then don't say it. Maybe that's one of those things in the stillness and quiet of your own heart and mind. Say, Lord, help me to pray for this person because I'd like to do something else. Why do we do that? Why do we pray for someone who persecutes us? Because God is our God. To be sure, this has a positive effect on your soul and much research has gone into the positive effect of prayer in the prayer's life, causing you to grow and trust and to become more humble. But prayer is also a kindness to the difficult person. It's one of the most loving things you can do to someone who's being difficult. Instead of returning injury, we pray for their good, their peace, and their cosmic restoration. See, in each of these cases, I think a theme starts to bubble up of surrender, which exposes the difficult person and the difficulty itself. This is exactly what Dr. King was after. See, in responding to evil people with love, their folly, their greed, their mistreatment is further revealed. Responding in love highlights the difficulty. It doesn't dismiss it. It doesn't overlook it. It doesn't leave it unquestioned. The evil one then is unmasked, and the kingdom of God actually advances in your heart and in those around you and potentially even in theirs. See, Jesus is not condoning the behavior of a difficult person, not in the slightest Jesus is suggesting, though, that love is much more transformative than retaliation. That's Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 12. Do not be overcome by evil, but what? Overcome evil with good. That's why Jesus says in his prayer 
for the persecuted, that we show that we are actually sons of the heavenly Father. When we behave in this way, verse 45 says you demonstrate you are children of the God of the universe. But let's be honest, and this is perhaps most difficult, so God help us with this. Even if your love brings all of these things to the surface, it begins to do a work on your heart, it still may not change the difficult person. They may still act a fool. They still may while out all the time in family gatherings. They still may be a persistent, difficult person. In fact, Dan Allender suggests in most cases, that difficult person is left unchanged. See, our motivation is actually then therefore not to change that person. It's to obey the Lord. It's to worship Him. It's to not be gripped and riddled by the gods of this world, but to submit ourselves to the one true God, that His kingdom would come and His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in that case, if this continues to persist, I think we have good biblical precedent that we got to set some boundaries. Now, this is not just an in vogue, cliche way of speaking. I think we see it throughout the Scriptures. See, now the moralist thinks when we talk about boundaries, suggest boundaries are bad. We're always supposed to love each other, and then we quote something crazy like, how many times am I supposed to forgive somebody? Seventy times seven, that means forever. So you're bad if you set a boundary. You're always supposed to forgive. That's a lie. Modern thinking suggests that boundaries are all about protecting us. First and foremost, it's about my well-being and what I want and what I desire as a relationship. The scriptures also critique that. What the gospel shows us, gospel thinking understands a boundary, which is a command of love, but also admitting our limits. My impulse is to love, but I'm a human being with limits. Perhaps surprisingly, Jesus set boundaries with people. Do you know this? I would love to do an entire series on the boundaries that Jesus set, particularly in taking time to be with his Father. But if you just look at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, there's this wonderful clue. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. What does it say? Jesus walked away from the needy crowd to be with his disciples. In other words, what does he do? He says no to the crowd, not because he doesn't love them, not because they aren't precious, not because they aren't image bearers, not because he's condemning them. It's because he had a particular time with his disciples set out in order to instruct them in a particular way. In fact, he couldn't have said yes to the disciples if he didn't say no to the crowd. He set a boundary. In the same way, then, it's healthy and wise to pay attention to the responses of difficult people to our love. If our overtures are constantly refused and that retaliation renders no change, their behaviors may lead to undue harm, even escalating to abuse. Therefore, we should be very careful how we counsel one another to constantly forgive or to constantly redraw the lines in ways that are actually harmful, not helpful. See, at some point, you run out of cheeks. At some point, you run out of clothes. At some point, you run out of miles, you run out of money, you are limited. Isn't it interesting that every example that Jesus gives, except for love, is a commodity that runs out? It's something that runs out. There's a finite number of things. See, the impulse of the Christian is to love, but the wisdom of the Christian is to know we have limits. Therefore, redrawing the lines of our relationship are not only helpful and necessary for you and I in our relationship with a difficult person, it's actually good for them too. Because what a boundary does, it's even loving for them, what a boundary does is it brings clarity. It brings truth. It brings fundamental nuance to a relationship. 
that is not merely dictated by bad behavior, but by truth and by care. See, boundaries demonstrate love to difficult people, bringing clarity about where they end and you begin, and where you end and they begin. It's being clear about who is who and who is responsible for what in that relationship. Now, Jesus has detailed all these ways um, that people might be difficult, and it's, I think, been clear about how we're supposed to respond in love and resisting retaliation, and now he gives us some hope. He gives us hope for difficult people. Look at verse 45, the latter half of it. So that you may be sons of your heavenly Father, or rather your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than, the, than others? Do not uh, even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus reminds us as sons and daughters that we're children of the heavenly Father. In other words, our hope is based upon our identity in Christ, not our behavior. And I think this is always really good news. So our identity is grounded in God's character, not in our activity or even our habits or our routine, our behavior. So what's he like? How does he, how does the Lord treat difficult people? Well, Jesus draws our attention to what theologians call common grace. Common grace is goodness, truth, beauty, mercy, love, which is freely given to all of creation. Notice he says, the same sun shines, bringing life and gladness to the one who does evil and to the one who does good. The same rain falls, nurturing the soil, rendering fruitful harvest for the just person and the unjust person. In other words, God shows love to difficult people, and he shows love to those who love difficult people. That's really hopeful. Do you know why? Because we are all difficult people. I'm in community with all of you. You're in community with me. We can't, we can't front. We can't pump fake into paint. We know. We know. We're in group together. It might be easy to put on a little mask for an hour and a half on Sunday. You can't do it when you're with your group at 7 p.m. on a weekday and you just barely got there and you're tired from work and you're angry at your kids, right? It's like, this is real life, people. Here we go. We're difficult. And so it's good to know that the sun and the rain don't show up simply when you're good and not difficult. It's good to know that the sun, at least for a couple of months in Chicago, will shine... (laughs) Not based on your disposition or mine or your behavior or mine, but on the goodness and grace and mercy and faithfulness of God. That's how he treats difficult people, through his common grace. Jesus furthers the point through a series of rhetorical questions. He says, loving lovely people, that's easy. Everybody does that. Wishing well, well people, that's easy. Everybody does that. The common grace of God demonstrates an otherworldly affection by loving unlovely people, by wishing well the broken. It demonstrates the type of love he is inviting his disciples then to embody is the same love you have received. How do we love difficult people? By loving them the way this difficult person has been loved. That's how we're supposed to love difficult people. But our hope is even better than that. See, the hope God gives for difficult people goes well beyond rain and sun. A further biblical view of the narrative of Jesus shows us that Jesus is the one who was slapped, that Jesus is the one who was stripped of his clothes, 
that Jesus was the one who was forced to carry his cross for miles, that Jesus is the one whom people begged for a reward that they did not earn. Jesus is the persecuted one. In fact, professor, writer, psychologist Diane Langberg explains that the crucified one is the one who is most traumatized. So Jesus knows the pain of difficult people. He knows the toll and the toil of this relationship. See, on the cross, he endures the absolute extreme and worst effects of painful relationship. And what does he not do? Retaliate. What does he not do? Hate. He doesn't seek revenge. He doesn't hate his enemies. And the prophet Isaiah saw this coming thousands of years beforehand. He wrote of him, he was opposed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus does not resist the evil person even as he is putting evil to death. Jesus dies for the evil person. Jesus loves the difficult person. Jesus died for the difficult person like you and like me, like that difficult person in your life and in mine. But God also sets some limits. He set cosmic boundaries within his family and outside of his family. This is why Jesus concludes his teaching with an invitation to perfection, or more precisely, to wholeness. He says again in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word teleos or perfect means mature and complete. Jesus is saying to you and me, be whole in this. Be whole. And the only way we are made whole in our relationship is when we, or rather our love, is defined and grounded in the way that our Heavenly Father has loved us. We love others the way we have been loved. When we see His love for us cosmically, difficult people, certainly we can love those around us who are not whole yet. See, we turn our cheek when we experience Jesus' patience towards us, We give our cloak when we realize that Jesus provides all of our needs. We give and rather go an extra mile when we remember that Jesus crossed galaxies to be with us. We give away our money when we realize Jesus is our treasure. We pray for our enemies when we realize that Jesus intercedes for us still with his heavenly Father. I hope you see this is our kingdom being. We don't imitate the world, we don't retaliate, we do not hate difficult people. Rather, we imitate our Heavenly Father by the power of the Spirit. We follow the Son and love difficult people, people like us. So, my sister and my brother, who is the difficult person in your life? The person you've been thinking about this entire time, over and over again, and say, Lord, anyone else, I would love to love someone else, and they continue to pop up. The question for us is, are we loving them the way that Jesus has loved us? May we persist in that. May we be honest about that. And may we receive the healing and power and wholeness of the gospel so that we can love others the way that God in Christ has loved us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word speaks to what happened to us this week. Jesus sat on this hillside and taught his disciples thousands of years ago, and somehow he's talking to my heart. Right here in Chicago, gathered with this church, 
2023. By the power of your spirit, you are amazing. And I know the same is true for my sisters and brothers. And so, Father, we thank you that you have loved us, difficult people, and are bringing us to wholeness. And so we ask for the miraculous power to love difficult people in our lives the way that you, God in Christ, have loved us. Yet, Father, we also need wisdom. We need wisdom to know what love looks like. This week is love about clarifying a new boundary with our parents or with a sibling. Or is it about finally calling the person that we've shunned because they shunned us first? Father, help us to know not just what action to take, but what burden you desire to lift from our souls. What fear you desire to quiet in our hearts because of your love. What wound you desire to heal. Because whatever we're dealing with, so is that difficult person. And if your grace is sufficient for me and for us, your grace is sufficient for anyone and everyone. So would you help us to believe that? Would you help us to be centered on that? Would you help us to trust that? That we would love others as you've loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.